This week's podcast is going to be just a little bit different than normal. We're going to start a little section called Cook's Corner. It's going to be talking with cooks and assisting them in gaining information and how to grow from being a backyard cook. Maybe if they're wanting to go to the pro division, that's what this will be for you. The first episode of Cook's Corner went really long, so you're going to have to listen in next week to see what happened after his contest and we spoke. Anyway, listen in to the first sucker into this world. Welcome to the Butcher Barbecue Podcast, World Headquarters, Wellston, Oklahoma. The Butcher Turn Pitmaster, your host, David Bosca. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Butcher Barbecue Podcast. On the phone today is Mark Bauer. He is a cook out of Florida that brought an idea to me that I just love, and we're going to initiate it today. So let's get started, and we'll tell you all about it. Mark, say hello. Hello, everybody. Mark, are you a competition cook? I am a backyard competition cook, which I've been doing probably way too long. And just this past year, I got really serious that I want to elevate my game and hopefully go pro pretty quick. But right now, I'm just a competition cook, and I've learned everything the hard way. Everything you read on the Internet, you know, join up with somebody, go and, and, and learn that way. I didn't do any of that. I learned it all the hard way. So that's why it's taken me like seven years just to get to this point. So, Okay. You said Florida. Where in Florida are you at? I live in Pompano Beach, Florida, which we call South Florida. It's right next to Fort Lauderdale. Oh, I know where Fort Lauderdale is. Okay. Let's explain to everyone how the initial part of this podcast has all gotten started. You shot me a contact form. Explain it. Well, I listened to one of your podcasts, and I don't have the gentleman's name in front of me, where you had done a competition, and I believe he was right when the competition was over. You interviewed him, and he was like his first KCBS competition, if I recall right. And you interviewed him, and I thought that was the best podcast I've listened to in a long time where you would just actually talk to the guys out there in the pits doing these competitions. And I just thought that was such a, a great podcast because I listen to podcasts. I walk almost every night and I listen to a different barbecue podcast from somebody every night. And that was the first podcast I listened to in a long time where I wasn't clicking the forward button to go past all the boring stuff and stuff that wasn't barbecue related and things like that. Well, cool. So he shot me a contact form through our website and says, I want to do more of these. I want to learn to elevate my game from a backyard cook to a pro cook. So we decided, well, let me back up. I asked him if he was a cook. He said, yes. I said, well, then why don't you come onto the show? Let's you and I do the initial, um, podcast and we're going to call it, well, my wife likes cook's corner. And so I'm thinking if we can elevate a backyard cook to get into the, the backyard division and maybe a backyard cook to get into the pro division, that's what we're going to do with this. I'm not sure how often we're going to be able to do this, but I'd like to do them once a month. So 
from this point forward, we are doing a Cook's Corner podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Let's start off with, well, you told us where you're at. What do you cook on? I like to cook on drums, particularly the Hunsaker drums. Like I have a competition coming up a week from today. To that, It's a three-meat backyard competition. I'm going to bring two Hunsaker drums. I also have a 22-inch Weber, and I have a little pellet grill, a little Green Mountain Davy Crockett pellet grill that I'm going to bring for my chicken. And right now, that's the grills I cook on, although in a perfect world, I would have four Hunsaker drums, but I'll get to that point. That's the perfect cooker for someone to start cooking on. You can get around with them. They're easy to get in with as far as cost factor. And they're just easy to run. All right. Let's let, tell everyone what sanctioning body, if there's a sanctioning body that's running this cook you're getting to go to. Yeah, I do most of my cooks in Florida, which is run by the FBA, the Florida Barbecue Association. And I, there's some things about the FBA I really like, and there's some things that are a bit annoying, but I really like the fact that only meat goes in the box. You don't have to worry to try to pretty up your box with all this green stuff. Only meat goes in the box. But at that point, they require a minimum of eight pieces in the box, where most competitions require six. So you're trying to get eight in there, which in the positive side makes you put more meat in the box, which gives you a fuller box keeps things warmer and things like that. But yeah, we're down here at FBA. Okay. What defines you in a backyard division versus someone next to you that might be in the pro division? What defines we- me? Well, I'm always learning. Of course, the pros will say that too. I'm always learning and I'm always willing to accept tips, things like that. And I mean, I cook okay. my heart out. I'm studying every minute this business and... It's just okay. In FBA's eyes is what I'm talking about. Why, why would you be a backyarder and a guy sitting right beside you might be a pro? Is it just the entry fee? It one's the entry fee. And two, there's some really good pros down here. And I mean, the entry fee is the biggest thing. And I'm not, haven't gotten enough top 10 calls in backyard to really feel I can compete well in the pros. I would like to think after this year that may change, but this year has just started, of course. Okay. That's what I wanted to get across is that if you're cooking in your own backyard, you don't have to go into these contests and go against myself, the Myra Mixons, the Tuffy Stones, those ghost guys right off the bat. What the backyard division does, it allows you to get your feet wet at a lower cost and competing against teams that are doing exactly what you're doing, not someone that spends 24-7, not saying you don't think about it, (laughs) but don't have 300 sponsors that pay their way to go buy the best quality beef, pork, chicken. You get to go against local teams that don't travel the United States cooking. That's what... A backyard division is probably originally set up to be. That sounds good. That sounds right. Yep. Yeah, it, it 
it's a way for folks to see if they like it and it still give them an inspiration to move forward. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've got the definition done. Let's go with what do you feel you need to learn to get to that next level? What What is your hang-up? I think my hang-up is a little bit meat selection, a little bit of the cook process. For a long time, I always thought the best spice, the best rub wins. Well, I've pretty much learned that that's not the case anymore. It's The cook process, I believe, is keen along with meat selection into into winning if you can master them and then you add your spices and sauces and and elevate it even more and go like that i feel you're on the right path you've you've picked two of the things that are very important knowing your meat is where it all starts you if you've were listening to any of my podcast you've heard me say you can't make a fillet out of hamburger second right, one right. is if you are the best at cooking a choice or a prime brisket that's what you need to cook at a contest. If you step up and buy these high-dollar Wagyu briskets just for that one contest, you're going to mess up a whole great big expensive piece of meat because they do cook different. So getting your cook down is as important as the flavor. A perfectly cooked piece of meat is the way it needs to go in. Your flavors can be added during the cook and after the cook. So... Let's start with that meat selection. Let's just start with your first category. What are you buying? What am I buying? I am buying, let's say, pork ribs. This is where I struggle with. In a perfect world, I would know this guy at a meat market who had my back. He could, if I would, I'd come to him and say, I need this for the next competition. And he would find me the best. And although not nothing at Wagyu prices, I'm not there. But he would find me the best, get it all trimmed up nice and hand it to me. But I wonder how many guys actually have that kind of a butcher out there that does it for them. So I'm out there always looking for meat sources. And right now, I'm like leaning towards Wild Fork. What do you call Wild Pork? Wild Fork. It's a meat distributor. I don't okay. know if you heard of them or not. But the, all their meats are frozen. They call them flash frozen. And so far, they've been really good, the ones I've tried. But okay, think, let's when, just stay when, with ribs. Okay. What are you looking for when you look at a rib to purchase for your when cook? I, all right, here's what I do. I, I look for the thickness of the meat. I look for that. You, you look for the fat content in it, the the marbling, I look at that. I like to know if I'm buying it, if it's been frozen already, and if it's just thawed, which is, can be really hard to tell. Um, but and it's got a. I don't. I like to buy, you know, the, the cut ribs that are already fairly cut, and the saw hasn't gone down the side and just chewed up the bones and things like that. Okay, let's digress and let's start with your first opening part of what you look for. You said the fat, the marbling. Um, there's a couple ways you can try to find the best marbled ribs. Yes, in the muscle itself, in the meat between the ribs is what's going to be eight. And that's where you're going to look for your marbling, not the actual exterior setting on top where it came from the bacon. Mm-hmm. But flip the ribs upside down. And you know that internal skirt, that flap that's inside there that everybody trims off? Right. You know what I'm talking about? I do. 
Look at that. If that is lean, that is going to be a false indication on the top if that fat is all the way through. In an animal, when it's alive, think of it like us. As we go to put on extra grease in our body, it starts going into areas we don't want, under the arms and things like that. That's basically what that is for a pig. So if that has marbling in the little flap, that means there's absolutely marbling throughout the meat. Use that as a good indication. Got it. Now, you said something about the bones you'd like to, you'd love to find them already St. Louis cut, but not everybody can. It's hard to, on a audio only cast, to explain how to cut a rib. But if you're on the end of the rib where the brisket bone is, go about three bones in, sometimes four bones in, and that's going to be the longest bone on that whole slab. Just go through your brisket bone at the top and cut it straight across and make sure that the all the rib bones are laying in the same... Oh, how can I word this? Make sure all the bones are in an... Well, I don't want to say that. That's not going to be right. Just make sure the bones are straight. Um, if you was to put them along the edge of your table, that way your cut at the top is going to be straight and all the ribs are in the same length that when they're cooked. Mm-hmm. What you want to look for on the bone end that is cut already, where it's separated from the rib cage, is the third bone in you want to see that it's a little oval or round. You don't want a flat bone. If it's flat, it's an older hog. And the older they are, the tougher they get. So the oval to round bone means it's a younger animal. And if it's at least at the same size you want weight-wise, then you know it was a younger pig that grew quicker. So versus an older one, that it took a couple years to get to that size. So it's definitely going to be tougher. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I come from a cattle industry background. And I'm sitting there thinking, why would anyone keep pigs two years unless they're cutting sows or something? But anyway. That's exactly, you no, know, you're not far off, bud. But there's some plants that, well, most plants right now are requiring them to weigh within a certain spec. And if they're over that, they get kicked. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as well as I do, if you've been in this business and they'll just pile up out there, they, or they'll dock the whole load. Oh, absolutely. You bring pigs that are too, too large. You get docked big time or too small. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's for another podcast. Let's stick to what we're trying to do. We do want to educate everyone on meat selection. And when it comes to hogs, that's going to be your biggest two things. I feel you need to look at Mm -hmm. if you're going to be. Buying St. Louis, if you can find a kitchen scale, um, Weight Watcher puts them out. There's several out there. Weigh your finished St. Louis cut. Then you'll see what your final outcome is. Then when you go to buy a St. Louis cut, you'll know what you need to be looking for. Then you can just subtract a little bit off of what you're going to be trimming off. Now, if you're going to buy a whole spare rib... You're going to really need to add a lot. I like cooking a three and a half uh, to a four pound St. Louis cut. That has to do with my cook itself because I use pellets. I'm a pellet cooker. 
-hmm. they need to stay in that cooking chamber a long time to capture any real smoke for me. So I need a larger piece of meat that holds more moisture throughout all of it. So if I was to buy a whole spare rib, I'm looking for a six and three quarter to a seven pound slab rib. Mm -hmm. That's how I can get down to my four. Any questions? No, actually, if I look at the ribs from my competition next week, they fall at about four pounds. So perfect. Looking good. Yeah. And that's going to change. That just works for me for the time and temp that I'm cooking. That's where you're going to need to take. This is the biggest. Okay. Put a big asterisk, a big star, everything right now mm-hmm. in this podcast. Anybody listening, take notes. Write down the brand of everything you buy beef, pork, chicken. Write down the size. Write down the finished trimmed size. Every single thing. Then when you get to the cook, you write down the spices you put on it, the temperature you're cooking at, the temperature outside. That makes a big difference for the air coming into your cooker. The, the amount of time it took to cook, when it came, when you put it on, when you took it off, the rest time, your thoughts on it. Did it get too dark? Did it get not done enough? Did the judges like it? What did they not like about it? There's so many things you need to make notes. And the reason so is when you go to do another cook in a month, two months, if you do two a year, you pull the sheet of paper out. And you're not shooting from the hips again. So for you, okay, end of the asterisk, we're done with that little note. Now for you, make a note right now of what you bought. You're going to mm-hmm. cook it for X time and temp. If you're mm-hmm. at the contest and you realize that it took longer than you thought, and they might have been, they weren't dried out, that means they were big enough. So you need to either increase your temperature a little bit and or your time without temperature increase or go back to the beginning and buy maybe a three and three quarter slab. Then that would make it come off quicker without having to increase your time and temp. Right. Any questions on that? Nope. I am a big note taker. So I pretty much perfect. That's perfect advice. I write a lot of notes and, and yeah, and they always look at them. So okay. Good advice. That's, good that's, advice. A, that's a huge plus. It is. I mean, let's be yeah. real. Football coaches, they go back and review plays. They go back and watch games. We can do this as cooks, too. Right. And that's how we can do that. Absolutely. All right. We're going to leave ribs. Oh, first, do you have any more questions on ribs prior to the cook? Not really. I mean, I'm going to try one new thing this time. I bought, I went to Hanan Ribs when I bought drums, and I want to try to go back to laying the ribs on the racks because I would buy the strip ribs with the straightest bones and then hang them and then pull them out, and then the bones would all cook crooked. So I'm going to go back to just laying them on the rack, and hopefully they stay straight that way. Yep. I can understand. I've never hung a rib. I've got a drum. I've cooked on it a bunch, but I've never hung a rib. I've laid them flat. But I can see where their advantage is. I know these guys cook them in just a couple hours. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into the cooking stuff a little later. What we're going to do is we're going to come back and finish this podcast 
after your cook and highlight or bring up the first and second parts of each piece of meat. So the next meat, let's look at pork butt. Okay. Pork butt. Obviously, tell me what for, you're buying and what you're looking for when you buy. Well, usually looking for a good money muscle. And the last pork butt brand I bought, you know, I hear guys on the pros buying Compart and such, but that's expensive. That's not me. So I have been buying them at like Costco. And I also buy some at the restaurant depot store. Now what brand they're using can vary, but, but usually okay. they're 10 pounds a piece or so. Okay. I like you got the a weight that you know about. And you mm-hmm. said you look for a good money muscle. Well, big, I guess, is my definition of good. One that looks big. If I can find one that sticks right out there, that's what I'll get. Okay. Let's start with the money muscle. Better yet, let's start with how you're going to present your pork. Since you're concerned about the money muscle, I'm assuming that you're going to cut it off and slice it for your turn-in box. Right. If I don't overcook it, that's what I do. Okay. That's the reason I was asking about that. We always got to think of your end use and buying starts with that. If you're not going to do money muscle, there's no sense in just looking for that item. That's the reason I said that. Okay. All right. In a money muscle, there's going to be from the, when I say top to bottom, if the fat cap is laying on a table, the pork butt's going to be about four inches tall. There's going to be fat striations running around the money muscle from top to bottom. And now there's going to be fat going the opposite direction. You still need to look for marbling right there. That is not just the outside. That is on the internal part of the pork. There is a muscle that lays on the top of the pork butt almost looks like a tri-tip if it's ever trimmed out. I look right there also. That way I know there's pork fat, marbling, whatever you want to call it, throughout the whole muscle. And it's not just on the outside in a false presentation. Eyeball the whole thing. When you're looking for that, that's not covered with fat so you can see it? or or how do you It's not it? on the fat cap. It's on the meat side. On the meat side. Okay, so you got to flip it over. Okay. Yes, it's on the meat side. Do you look for a total fat cap? Well, they all have fat caps. I don't know what you mean by total fat cap, but the ones I get all have fat caps. Okay, that's that's what I like too. What color of fat do you look for? Or have you even thought of that? Well, if it's not frozen, I usually take my finger and push on it, and if it... If it springs back, that's supposed to be a good sign, right? Not necessarily. And what I mean by that is if it just, what you're calling springs back, that means there may be a lot of loose muscle in there and it could have been less grain fed. The firmer Mm. the animal sometimes means there's more fat internally. There's more in between the muscle cells. So just because it's loose and jelly, that doesn't necessarily make it a good piece of meat. Yeah, I like my pork fat to be white. Just okay. that's, that's always means to me, there was a lot of grain in the feed when it was in the feed lot. 
I'm not a fan of the pale to yellow looking pork fat. I like a white pork fat. And then look at the pork muscle itself. If you've got a pale looking pork, there's less oil in it. And with less oil, there's less grease. With less grease, there's less flavor. So I really like a darker piece of pork. And I'm not calling a dark cutter. Just a the darker the pork, the higher the pH, the higher the oil, the higher the flavor. Interesting. Okay. Any other questions on pork buying? Nope, not on buying. That's, yeah. Okay. So white pork or white fat. Well, there you go. What's your next category? Oh, let's then, back up one quick. What? Let's back that? up. How far out do you buy your meat for your contest? Well, if I'm not going to, usually that week of is I'll try to buy it then unless it's, unless it's already frozen. Then, of course, I can buy it within a month. When you I'll buy frozen beef and pork, make sure there's not a lot of, it's myoglobin is what it is. It's not blood. It's not juice. It's called right. myoglobin. Mm-hmm. Make sure there's not a lot of that inside the bag. That means it was flash frozen mm-hmm. and it didn't set in a meat counter for 10 days. And then they go, well, I'm not selling it. I'm going to freeze it real quick because that's where the meat will lose its juices and it'll be inside the bag. So just make sure the bag doesn't have a lot of stuff in it. That sounds like my next ribs are going to be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now let's go into the next meat. What else are you buying? All right, that's chicken thighs, and Ugh. I don't really. Oh uh, yeah, normally my advice that I've heard on that is make sure your skin is white. I was at a class once, and I used to buy them fresh that week, trim them up, and have them ready to go. And I went to this class, and every, almost everybody there would buy them ahead of time, trim them, then freeze them. They'd buy them fresh, then freeze them, and then bring them out that week. So I went to that for this next competition I'm doing, and hopefully that's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. It all has to go with your preparation and your cook. It might work in their process, might not work in your process, but there's nothing wrong with that method. When it comes to chicken, you said you've always been told, look for white chicken skin. Right. Why, why do you feel that? I think it probably has less fat on it. Maybe it's a little fresher. Otherwise, I don't really know why white looks. Okay. There is a a lot of breeds of chicken. There's a lot of manufacturers of chicken that they come out yellowish to orange. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. That is just the feed. That is their growth. That is the breed. So earmarking saying only white chicken isn't necessarily right. I would say buy what you can buy every time in your local area and make sure it's the best of that product. Now, if it's white chicken skin, and I'm going to tell you, that's what we use. I use a Tyson chicken and it's generally the white area. There's Purdue chicken that is not necessarily white. There's Turkey farms that are not necessarily white. That doesn't make it bad chicken. You just have to know how to cook it. Chicken. What do you look for when you're buying chicken? Well, the skins. That, that they, since I cook thighs, that they have a, a decent skin, 
I bought one brand one time, and they had chopped the skin so weird you couldn't even use the skin. So I won't buy that brand ever again. But So it's got a – and, of course, you want to try to get them all the same size. And remember, I have to put eight of them pieces in a box, so they can't be that big. I think you hit the right note right then. To me, it's about uniformity and size when I'm buying. I like a half-pound chicken thigh. So four of them is going to weigh two pounds. Six packs are going to be two and a, um, three pounds. That way I know that at least they're starting out the same. Mm-hmm. For the same reasons you're saying, we put six in our box. I need mm-hmm. them to fit a certain way. Now, when it comes to chicken, things do you have to remember is I actually look at each individual thigh because not like a rib or not like the brisket you're going to cook, there is a great chance that all six pieces of those chickens in that package came from six different chickens. So the chances of you eating one and it being the same flavor and texture as the one beside it are very little. Versus a brisket, you can get a slice and right beside it's what you're going to turn in. You're going to know mm-hmm. how tender that is. Yep. So start with just exactly what you're saying. If you if chicken skins are important to you, and they are important to me also, I want them to cover everything I needed to cover. I like, I'm not going to say a dark chicken, and I'm not going to say a light chicken. Um, but if you find chicken with marbling, what looks like marbling, I should say, you might question it. Chicken does not have marbling. Okay, there is some diseases in chicken and it won't make you sick or anything, but it will look like marbling in the chicken breast and the thighs. And it looks just like striations. That's actually a genetic defect in the farm's chickens and they're growing them too fast. And they actually come more in natural chickens than a cage chicken because Hmm. of what they are. People think that, oh, I'm getting marble chicken breast. What it does, it makes the chicken breast and the chicken thighs get real spongy. And people don't even realize that. They think it's um, a brine or the injection or they didn't cook it. It's actually the chicken itself. And they don't realize that it has to do with that at the beginning. All right. Yeah, I think I'm using Purdue on my next cook. So we'll see what they're like. That's a good brand of chicken. I've cooked a lot of those. Mm Mm-hmm. On the chicken skin, I look for something that doesn't have a lot of marks in it. Sometimes you'll see little pin feathers still in them. You can yep. pop them out. Yep. Do you scrape your chicken skins? I do. I don't. I just the biggest fat pieces of it. I scrape it, and then I take that. Was that the jacardi or what do you call that tool? And I jacquard. hit it with that. Yeah, jacquard. So I do some scraping and I hit it with that. Perfect. That should be just fine. And do you trim and make your chicken mold and look like your little pillow? Or do you try to look like the natural chicken? I make them try to look like pillows. And I have gone through every mold in the country trying to use molds to make eight pieces look good in a box. And I finally threw out all my molds and I bought what finally worked which I'm going to try at this next competition because I haven't done it at a competition yet, is I trimmed those thighs down to 0.20 pounds. And then I got this 8x8 eight eight pan, and if I go five, two rows of five across that pan, 
holds them to the right right size where I can like put eight of them if I could put them in a box so they look good not not you know turn this way and that way and that's why I'm just the natural the cooking topic. process holds them in place right yeah because they're kind of squeezed against each other so they can't deform too much so yeah we'll see what happens I think you're on the right path um, I don't have seen any real problems with the purchasing part of that at all. Mm-hmm. Any questions on chicken? Did we enlighten anything or do we just confuse the hell out of you? <laughs> nope. Nope. It's, it's all been good. It's all been good. So all right, then, let's go on to the next one. The next one. Let's the next one. Let's talk about, oh, my next competition doesn't have it, but we need to bring it up anyway is the brisket. One of my more frustrating meats to try to get it to. I never like how my brisket ends up tasting, but we can get to that in the cooking part of it. But but it always ends up in the middle of the pack anyway. But buying brisket's frustrating too. I'll see brisket marked prime. It looks like it has any marbling in it. And then I see brisket marked select. It looks like it's full of marbling. And they both bend about the same. So which one would you pick if they were sitting side by side? I'd buy the prime. And the prime reason I even, say that yeah. is the brisket is not grated. So what would you buy? Well, I've been told to buy the ones with the most marbling, but. Bingo. I, I fibbed to you a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> buy the one that looks right. Because like I said, the brisket is not grated. They grade mm-hmm. the beef between the 12th and 13th rib on the loin meat. That brisket is, you know, as well as I do, it's a long ways from there. That brisket yeah. could have been on an animal that doesn't use that muscle a lot, so it built up more fat in that area. So just because that animal is graded prime doesn't mean that that brisket is going to have the highest concentration of marbling. I think right, you would good. make the right choice. I've always shied away from select, not to thinking there was something else wrong I didn't know. Things to remember when it comes to buying what we're going to say U.S. American beef, the ones you see in the grocery stores are either going to be no roll, select, choice, and some primes. When they're coming through the grading process in a meat plants, the plants want as much prime and choice as possible. Then they say, we only have X amount of blocks sold for select. After that, we don't need to pay this inspector to grade it they still have the inspection service there to make sure the wholesomeness of the meat is proper so it might go no roll so you might find a choice or a prime in that lower grade it just Mm -hmm. because they didn't spend the money and the time for that doesn't mean it's not that so pick the best one you look at flip it upside down how much fat content is on the backside generally that'll be a good inclination too you mentioned something about they both been the same. Why is that important to you? Well, that's what I've seen, that if they don't bend at all, that may be a sign of a tough piece of meat. Is that right? Incorrect. That's not a fib. <laughs> not a fib. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's go with the beginning of this animal. When this animal is killed, sorry, folks that are, afraid to hear that, but it is what it is. 
CO2 is trapped inside the body, which is the muscles. And whenever that is killed, that carbon dioxide cannot run through the liver, can't get out of the blood cells. So it's trapped and it's tightened up. As it goes through rigor mortis, um, things will start to leave the muscle fibers and that opens up pockets in there. And that's when it starts firming. That takes time. And it'll even do it in the bag after it's been vacuum packed. So the USDA says that is all complete in seven days. That is incorrect. It takes a lot longer than that for the meat to get what we'd call tender. We always hung our meat 14 to 21 days. That's a great start. But when it comes to vacuum packing this meat, they do that in the plants within 48 hours generally. So it can set even longer. What that bend means is a couple things. Either there's not a lot of fat in it, because when fat is cold, it's very hard. You're not going to bend it. Mm -hmm. So that means it's either just a pure lean piece of meat, or it hasn't had enough time to uh, wet age. As it wet ages and it sets in that vacuum pack, that is going to come out of the meat and then it's going to get looser in that bag. So if you had a prime one that bent, that probably would tell me that it's already gone through a long wet age stage and it's ready to be cooked. If you buy a prime and it's really firm, put it in your refrigerator and make sure it stays consistently cold like 35 and mm-hmm. let it set for another two weeks and see how much more bend you're going to get out of it. I'm always afraid Any to thoughts? let stuff sit. Yeah, I'm always afraid to let stuff sit that long, but apparently in beef it's okay to do that. Part of the uh, aging process. Boneless beef can go up to about 45 days before it goes souring. What mm-hmm. you have to do is not look at the date on the label. See if you can find the date from the box. That'll tell you either Julian date, the date was packed, or their suggested expiration. A lot of times your local butchers will go back and just say, oh, yeah, the box on the date is 20 days ago. Now you know you've only got about 20 more days. Right. If you can get that box date, a lot of times all you see is the dates the butchers put on the brisket. Right. So you'd have no idea how long it's already been sitting out. If you get to know your store where you're shopping at, ask Mm -hmm. them what their policies and procedures are. There is a lot of businesses that what they do is they will not go beyond the date on the box. So when they go to type in their Hobart scales, they'll make sure it matches that date that's on the box. Or some stores has a program to where they'll only put a seven-day shelf life because in those counters going on and off of defrost, it'll lower the shelf life versus what you're going to do in a refrigerator that the door never opens. Because mm-hmm. when those go on defrost, they'll get up 55, 65 degrees, blowing warm air, which will make that uh, meat not last as long. Right. So just get to know your place of where you're buying it. That's what's important. Right. That's hard to find a place like that, too. That It absolutely is. It's hard to find. If I ever find a place like that, I'll treat them like gold. Yeah. Hey, us butchers like that when you bring us some burn-ins. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so. Okay. Brisket's still a big piece of meat. What all are you yeah. looking for there? You said the right. bend. You said marbling. Mm-hmm. Marbling, yep. Thickness. Yeah, the thickness of the flat especially. I want to be able to get some sort of slices out of there. And... So if I can see that, sometimes it's when you think when you buy a whole piece and it's all packaged up and sometimes it's hard to get a really good look at stuff, but, but yeah, I'd like a good thickness if I can get it. Okay. Let's think of when you're looking at your brisket to buy, you got to think of your turn in box. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're saying thickness. We're talking marbling. When you're looking at this raw piece of meat, let's just say on the left side of the flat is where it's really thin. The right side is where the point is and it gets four to five inches thick. Right. Looking at that brisket, where are you going to pull your slices from for your box? Well, at that thicker end, of course. Do you the, separate your point, point off and only turn I in do. the... I do. I, okay. I get to turn in burnt down, so... My point comes out really well when I cook it. I wonder if I shouldn't be just turning it in, but, but I have never done the that. The reason I ask it the way I ask it is there's not much sense at looking at a brisket that is really thin, let's say on the the left side we was talking about, where it's just slices only and not the point. Mm-hmm. If that area over the point is beautiful and you can tell it's super thick, a lot of marbling, why are you going to set it back down in a counter if your factors for not wanting to buy has nothing to do with the engine not going to turn in anyway? Yeah, that's true. That's the reason I I was bringing it up that way is always think of your end use. What am I going to turn in? Chicken, ribs, money muscle, brisket. It all has to do with that. You're kind of an interior decorator. You not only are you picking out the right furniture, you got to think of the pillows that's going to go on that couch that matches your wallpaper. Mm-hmm. So as you're buying your meat, you got to think of your process all the way down. Absolutely. All right, Mark, what else can we talk about pre-cooking? Pre-cooking. Well, we've selected our four meats, right? Yep. So now we move on to getting them ready. Okay. Do you trim your meat prior to a competition? I do now. In the beginning, like I said, I learned everything the hard way because I never went to anyone to show me how to do this. In the beginning, I didn't think you could, so I trimmed it all right there. And what a what a stressor that was. So now I trim as I can before I even go to a competition. I personally think that is the right way to do it for multiple reasons. The biggest reason is it takes the time you're at the cook-off concentrating on the cook, not the trim, not the quality of the meat. That should already be taken care of. And think about how much free time you're going to have on a traditional cook-off on a Friday. All you got to do is get your site set up, get your spices, and you're done. Kick back and enjoy the contest. If you've got to spend six hours under an easy up with flies and wind, that's not going to be a fun moment for you. No, that's how I used to do it right under that easy up. But yeah, stepping up now, I finally bought a little trailer now. So getting serious. Oh yeah. 
But for most folks that's going to listen to this that are backyarders, they're going to be under easy ups, just like how yeah. we all we all started that way. Yep. And if you can trim this at home, not only will it take the time factor away from you on Friday, but what if you get that spare rib that has a broken bone right in the middle and you didn't notice it? Mm-hmm. Now at a contest, you are subject to whatever the local store has. Yep. At or least you take if it out you of the package and it smells weird or something, yeah. Yep. At least if you do it prior to the contest, if it's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if it's Sunday before, you just vacuum pack it, you put it in your refrigerator, and you keep it as cold as possible. If there's a mistake in your buy-in, go buy another one. Throw that mm-hmm. one in a deep freezing. You can use it as a test cook. Yep, very true. We've trimmed prior to a contest. Now, probably one of the most important part that is not meat selection what all do you take to a contest? Do you put the kitchen sink and everything in a trailer and go? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yep. I, I mean, I have several cool. I invested in a camber this year, which I absolutely love. And all kinds of pans, spices, extra charcoal, knives, pretty much whole. Do you put these in tubs and keep them ready for the next one or do you got to go through and gather everything up each time no i have tubs tubs and they're all labeled like one tub's got all stuff for the grill in it one's got clean up in it one has pans and storage containers in it stuff like that i i like the tub system i do too one thing we did when we did the pitmaster shows i took a extra lot of tubs not knowing what we were going to cook Mm-hmm. I even labeled the tubs per recipe. Um, let's say if I thought it would be a pork loin roast or a pork roast of some kind, every single thing I needed for that recipe was in there. I had my bottles of rub, my injections, everything was in there. You mm-hmm. could do that for a contest. You could put everything you need for chicken in a tub. Yep. Trimming, the jacquard, Take an extra jacquard, not the one you have at the house, but take one in case you get there and your chicken has soured. And I've had that happen. I've had to be mm-hmm. subject to the local store, had to run to the store, buy some thighs, and trim them. If I didn't have an extra jacquard, I'd been in trouble. Yeah. But put everything you need for that recipe right there. You open it up, you prep your chicken, close the tub, put it to the side. The next morning when you go to um, put it in a pan, open it up, your aluminum pan's in that same tub, pull it out, close the tub. When you go to prep your chicken for the actual box, open it up. Anything you need to prep for that chicken is in that tub. You're not running around your site trying to find everything. Do that with your beef, your pork, everything. It really helps organize and keeps everything straight. Right, and especially if you're working under easy ups, a lot of this stuff's sitting outside and it rains which it does all the time in florida it helps protect your stuff too yeah the wind the rain the blowing everything yeah when i first started i used before i just bought this barbecue trailer i'm only using it the second time next weekend i would rent u-haul i'd run a u-haul trailer and put everything in there and then haul it to a competition and do my thing and come back and turn the trailer in and so that's I rented the U-Haul trailer a lot of time. They're a good trailer to do that with. We've talked about meat. 
meat selection, what works for you, my opinions on it. Now, how do you find your contest? What do you do? To find a contest, the FBA ones, I just go to their website and they're all listed right there. But you also want to check check out the KCBS because there's one of them down here once in a while too. And I'll go there. Where I live in South Florida, there's no contest. I have to travel everywhere, which you would think living in the Fort Lauderdale area where there's a million people, we'd have contests every weekend, but there's none down here, none, zero, zip. So I go to the FBA website, find one within three or four hours and travel to them. Okay. Out here where I live in Oklahoma, there's also a lot of county fairs that have them. There is a lot of American Legion type huts. Those organizations host them. So there's a lot of places for folks to find cooks to go to. Yeah, I wish we had that stuff down here, but we don't. All right. Prepping prior to a cook. Now we found a place to go cook. Who all goes cook with you? My okay. wife and I. Yep. She she enjoys it too, so she comes Would with Would you me. say, and this is where I was going with that, if there's, let's say, a group of guys or gals from work that decide to get a little team going, and you're a husband and wife, and there's just as many of them, and I don't mean just husband and wives, we're talking about cook teams. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Do y'all go in with designated jobs, or do you do it and she just assists whatever's needed? Or does she do it and you assist whatever's needed? How do y'all go in preparation before the cook where you know what's expectations? It's, it's kind of both. I do a lot of it where she assists. But she also has her areas like she'll put the boxes together. She'll put the meat in the boxes. I mean, again, we don't need all the green crap in there. But she'll arrange the meat in the boxes and kind of clean them up and then run them up there. And that's one job she really likes. Otherwise, she's, she's there to assist or, and help watch the smokers. And she, she knows the whole process, too. She, if you asked her if she would, could do it without me, she'd probably say no, but... But she's definitely familiar with how it's done and and can do anything that needs to be done. Okay. That's where I was going is, in my opinion, it is fun to get a group of friends together to go to a comp and to have a team. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, there needs to be someone in charge to say, man, you need to go lay down. You're drunk. Mm -hmm. get out of the way the rest of us will take care of this you know what i'm saying there's got to be still someone in charge that ultimately has their thumb on the pulse of the whole cook oh that would be me even though i'll let you do i'll let you try to help but you know i guess my cook in essence so i'm responsible for what's being turned in so i would I'll have my thumb on it and it's fun to have other people come and help and assist mostly they just drink beer but it's fun to have other people around for the backyard guy we've went over a whole lot where this podcast is getting really long i only want to ask one more question and then for part two of this podcast when we go back and start talking about after your cook the one question i have still to ask is how often do you practice competition style cooking that's that's a good question when I moved to Florida four years ago, I bought a condo on the seventh floor. Now, cooking at a condo is, like, impossible. 
So I wasn't practicing very much, but then in this past year, I rented a work bay. And this work bay, I can store my trailer in it, and I can cook there anytime, and no one's offended, and no one cares. So especially leading up to a competition, and I'll cook something every weekend for practice. Last weekend, I cooked a rack of ribs and chicken. And the weekend before that, it was wings and chicken and ribs. So at least a month leading up to the contest, I'm practicing every week. That's important. It really is. Mark, is there anything else you want to ask or bring up for this section? For the section on meat selection and such. I think we're pretty good unless we want to talk about more about trimming but okay let's talk about it i'm that this is to help you this is ultimately Mm -hmm. what i want to do trimming pork butt is my there's a lot of times i've seen people trim their pork butt so much i don't know how it doesn't end up dried out and then there's like me i like to take a little heavy chunks of fat off and throw it all in where should i be at there again you need to look at your end process if you're going to cook very fast if you can cook hot, fast, and quick, you need less meat to go in. If you're into more of a lower, slower, you need a bigger piece of meat or it will dry out. And then go to the last step. What am I turning in? If you're turning in money muscle and chunks or money muscle and shred, the shred can come from about any part mm-hmm. that's got a good texture to it, not mush. The money muscle can only come from one part. Right. So trimming has to do with those other steps. If you're going to put down on a grate the traditional-looking pork butt, not butterfly it open and take any of the extra stuff off of it, your whole process of your trimming is easy. Mm-hmm. Don't You don't need to put much of a knife to it. Right. It's hard to get into trimming on a podcast because – I can move my hands left and right and show you where a pork butt this all is on that, but you can't visually see it. I didn't go very in-depth in that, but we can ask and answer questions Mm -hmm. just like this. So always look at your end result. If you're cooking a pork butt, you slicing, you are, it was a little bit dry. Think of your process from the trim, the purchase, the trim. Was it a lot of purge in the bag? Then during the cook process, do I have to mist it? Do I need to oil it? Do I need to put a pan underneath it? Do I need to reduce the heat that is directly on it? And that's going to be knowing your cooker with the Mm -hmm. airflow. Your heat may be just right, but the airflow is coming around a heat shield and that might be the first thing that hits. Flip it around the other way. Put a false um, air duct around it a couple inches off of it to where the heat doesn't hit it directly. There's so many things that you can do to protect that money muscle without just trimming it completely off. Completely off. Yeah. Normally I cook the whole thing. When the money muscle gets to around 190, I actually remove it, finish the rest of the pork butt. And that's how I've been doing it. I don't cut it off. I never found that to be the best for me. Mm -hmm. I cook my money muscle to 203. And then I let the whole pork butt rest. I don't probe temperature on the rest of that pork butt at all. I don't care. I'm turning in money mm-hmm. muscle and some shred. I can get my shred around the outer part, and that's all I need. The middle part of that pork butt is chunked up 
great big size of my fist, throws it in a Ziploc, comes back to the house. So the kids and the wife crock pot it, and they break it on down so it can be shredded. That's interesting. That is interesting. You just cook the money muscle to the temp and then take it off, the whole thing off. Take the whole thing off. I don't unwrap it. I don't vent it. I don't do anything. Set it in my Cambro, and I let it set till I'm ready to slice. Hmm, I want to try that. Don't try it this weekend. <laughs> Test cook it. Right. Okay. That's a big thing right there. Right, right. All right. Mark, let's put a halt to this time, and then we'll okay. finish up on the next one. So this will be fun. We'll get to go back and see if thinking on your turn-ins, if you'd have changed anything you bought. Right. Right. That'll be interesting. And we'll go I'm over your turn ins. So. Sure. Yeah. We'll go over your turn ins as much as you want. Uh, if you want to keep your cards close to your chest, I respect that. But if you want to talk to me about anything that happened, bud, feel free to let me know and we'll we'll discuss it. Yeah. And don't I'll send get me wrong. My, yeah, I'll send you my cards. I'll send you pictures of the boxes and we can pick it up from there. I like that. And don't get me wrong, folks. I want everyone to know these are just my opinions. This isn't be all that there is for contests. There is as, as many cook teams as there is, is there is that many processes. That doesn't make one is worse or one is better than the other. It what works in your cooking chamber. It what wor- It is what works for your final turn-in. Keep that in mind. Smash that subscribe button and be ready for Butcher's next podcast.